<coughs> We're back on the Church Life series tonight, and um, we come to the first of two, two, two talks specifically on the subject of women in the church. And what we've got to do tonight is that before we can establish what women ought to be doing in the church, the role that God has given to the ladies, we must first clear away the teaching in the Bible about what they can't do and why not. So that's what we're going to be covering tonight, a negative, if you like. Now, we've already seen in the last talk, firstly, that women can't be deacons. But we saw as well that when understood what a deacon actually is, that I said that I wouldn't imagine that the feminist lobby uh, will be particularly interested too much because the deacons are, after all, just the odd job men of the church. There's no authority in it, anything like that at all. And uh, just while we're on that, if you if you go to to one Timothy, there's just one thing that I just um I left a little loose end last time, and I just want to to actually clear it up. If you find one, <clears throat> 1 Timothy, chapter 3, tonight we're going to be in chapter 2, but just chapter 3 at the moment. <clears throat> and uh, one of the things we saw is that uh, Paul in chapter 3 is dealing with the qualifications of an elder, then the qualifications of a deacon. And we found this little verse in the middle, the women likewise. And you remember I was saying that that was the ministries for women and the qualifications for the ladies. Um, now, in my version, it says the women likewise, and in some of your versions, it says deacons' wives. Now, <clears throat> I sort of said that was a wrong translation, that it should be women, not wives, but uh, I just thought to, in fairness to the translators, explain to you why it is that it's got wives there. And it's quite simply because in the Greek, the same Greek word, gune, is translated either women or wives. And you know which one it is from the context. So the reason that some of your versions have got the wives also, you know, as if it's kind of qualifications for the deacon's wives, the reason it's got that is because wives is a perfectly okay translation of the Greek word gune. Wives or um, women will do. But the reason that I'd maintain that the RSV and some of the other translations are right is that it's not saying a qualification for the wives of deacons precisely because Paul doesn't do that with the elders. He doesn't deal with the elders and then put qualifications for what their wives are supposed to be like. And the reason is that he establishes that elders are to be the head of their own home. Now that covers what kind of women their wives are going to be. It's the man's responsibility. And likewise, one of the things that the deacons has to, a deacon has to make sure is that he is the head of his own house. And that covers, if you like, the subject of deacons' wives. So I just thought I'd clear that up. That's why I'm saying it's not deacons' wives, you know, a translation that can go either way. But one way or the other, it's not material to the question of whether or not women can be deacons. So I just wanted to chuck that in, just in case anyone had been doing their Greek homework and saying, oh, Beresford, you weren't really fair with the translators on that one. Anyway, so we leave that. We've established through the last talk what deacons were and that women cannot be deacons in the church. So that's the first thing that the ladies can't do. But the main thrust of the teaching of the New Testament in the church concerning this is the point about eldership. 
And that what we must do tonight is to demonstrate that the Bible teaches quite clearly that eldership, leadership, must be male. We're going to be looking at a few other things concerning the ladies as well, but we're going to be homing in a bit later on this fact that the Bible teaches that eldership must be male. Now, let me say as well that for some of you, this is going to be a little bit of homework. We've done this before, but I want to remind you that I've said several times that this church life series is running in tandem with the spiritual gifts series. All right. And so, you know, you'll only get the whole picture when you've had the teaching about church life connected with the teaching about the gifts of the Spirit. So if you haven't heard the Spiritual Gifts series, then all I can say is your knowledge is going to be incomplete on the subject of church life without having heard that. Right, go to 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that Paul deals with the qualifications of elders, all right? And that we've seen as well that some people try and read women eldership into chapter 3. Well, what I'm going to show you tonight is how Paul knocks that idea on the head in chapter 2. And so it's chapter 2 that we're going to concentrate on. And uh, we'll just, just start reading from verse 9. There's a, 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 a few verses that we need to do. He says that women should adorn themselves modestly and sensibly in seemly apparel, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but by good deeds as befits women who profess religion. Let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet woman will be saved through bearing children if she continues in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Now, we're going to deal with all of those verses, all right? So um, we'll take them one by one because they're all on the subject of women in the church. Now, we've seen here that Paul actually proceeds to talk about the way that women ought to appear, the way they dress. Let's, let's, let's go through this. This is interesting. He says, I pray that women should adorn, them, adorn themselves modestly and sensibly in seemly apparel. Now, let's, let's go into this. First of all, he's talking about how women should adorn themselves. Now, what does this word adorn mean? The Greek word here is cosmio. And it means to arrange or to put in order. That is the meaning of the Greek word. It means to decorate, to arrange or to put in order. Cosmio. Interestingly enough, we get our English word, cosmetics, from this word. Cosmio, to decorate, to put in order. Uh, what I want to show you is that Paul is not saying that women cannot decorate themselves at all. So he's not saying that all cosmetic treatment is out. But what Paul is doing, he's going to put some limits on it. And it's those limits that we want to go through now. now let's see them one by one. He says, yeah, sure, women should adorn themselves. Of course they should. 
But firstly, they should do it modestly. Modestly. So you ladies, you must be modest in your appearance. What does it actually mean? Well, this Greek word modestly, in actual fact, is eidos. And it means a sense of shame. And in fact, in the King James Version, I think he, Paul actually says that, that they ought to dress with shame. Now, there's been an awful lot of misunderstanding about this particular word and how it's been translated into English. Paul is not saying that women ought to dress bearing in mind that there's something shameful with being a woman. That is not the slightest what Paul is getting at. There's another idea that's behind everything he's saying, and it comes out better in the Greek than it does in the English translation. And what he's getting at, and we're going to be seeing this again and again, is quite simply this. He's trying to get across the idea that a decent woman, a follower of Jesus, would be horrified to think that she might have stirred up sexual feelings towards herself through an impropriety in dress or how she appears. Now that is the idea behind what Paul is saying it. Let's see it a bit more. He says that they should adorn themselves modestly. He says with this sense of shame, the idea that they would feel ashamed if they thought that you know, they were sexually stimulating people by dressing in a sexual way. That's what Paul's meaning. And he says that they must adorn themselves sensibly as well. Now, this word sensibly, we came against it when we uh, saw the qualifications for an elder. It's sophroshune, and the Greek word means soundness of mind, or soberness, or sobriety. <coughs> and the literal meaning of it is sound judgment. That when women, the way that they appear, they must do so with sound judgment. We saw that an elder must be sensible. He's got to be a man of absolutely sound judgment in all areas. Now here, Paul is saying that women must be of sound judgment when it comes to the way they dress and the way that they appear. And that this idea of sound judgment is that what it means, and we saw this when we did the qualifications of an elder, that it's the idea behind it is self-government. And here it's kind of governing yourself with a constant reign on anything that might cause temptations, temptation in others. And Paul is saying, look, you ladies, you've got to realise that you have an extra responsibility because the way you dress, the way you appear, can actually cause people to fall into sin. And so what we've got to understand is that these strictures that Paul is placing on the way that they dress, they're not just there, or they're not primarily there, to curb the female sinful nature regarding being loose or anything like that. They're mainly there because of the sinful nature in the menfolk. And as everyone knows, men can be beasts. And the Bible is tremendously realistic. And so the Bible says that the ladies have got to take this into account in the way 
that they dress. I mean, obviously it goes without saying that some women like to dress loose and they do it because of their own sin. But Paul's saying it's not just the sin in the female heart that's got to be taken into account here, that he's saying that you've got to take into account that that can cause other people to fall into sin as well. So this teaching is not just to protect the ladies from their own sin, it is also to protect the men too from temptation to sexual sin. So he said modestly, sensibly, and he says in seemly apparel. Seemly apparel. Now that word seemly is cosmios, and it means orderly. It's related to cosmio. All right, to arrange or to put in order, but here the actual word is cosmios, and it means orderly. And that really, what it's meaning here is appropriate. How can we put it? What Paul is saying, dress in a seemly and orderly way, and cosmios means a place for everything and everything in its place. And that has got to be taken into account in the way that the ladies dress. Let's be frank. I'm going to put to you that what Paul is talking about here is what I call the dishevelled look. Now, think about it. If you go around, you ladies, looking like you've been dragged about by the hair by some Neanderthal who's just had his way with you, blouse half undone, hair all over the place, now, and, and there are women who dress like that they deliberately appear in that way, then we've got to say that that is just not fair on the men. But also, it would say something very unflattering about any woman who wanted to dress like that. Can you see what Paul is getting at? We all know instinctively that there is a way that women can dress which is purely sexual in its appearance. And this is what Paul is getting at. And of course today, in the society that we live in, I mean all you've got to do is to watch a few adverts or watch videos on top of the pops to see the classic example of what Paul is teaching against. And we've got to make sure that this doesn't creep into the church in any way. Now, he goes on to say, right, that is how you ladies ought to do it. He says, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. He says, look, you know, you don't need the Vidal Sassoon hair treatment. He says that you don't need the Yves Saint Laurent gowns. And any woman who's going to base her appearance on that really is a woman who has yet to discover what it means to be a woman. This is what Paul is saying. That if your reliance is on things like that, then you've got the completely wrong idea about God's idea of how he wants you to be as a woman. The same with jewellery. You know, I mean, people who go around wearing their husband's salary round their neck. Do you know what I mean? And Paul says, I don't want any of this in the church because this isn't the way that we are supposed to be. I'll be coming back to that point about hair and gowns and jewellery in a few moments. 
But he says, don't do it like that. He says, but by good deeds as befits women who profess religion. He's saying femininity does not lie in that outward appearance. It lies in something on the inside. Keep your finger where, you know, in that passage and go to 1 Peter, the first letter of Peter. Find 1 Peter, chapter 3, <coughs> and the first four verses. And Peter says, Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that some, though they do not obey the word, may be won without a word by the behaviour of their wives when they see your reverent and chaste behaviour. And what Paul's saying, uh, what Peter's saying there, he's specifically referring there that there were ladies in the church whose husbands weren't saved yet. And when he says that they may be one without a word, what he's saying is, look, they're not going to get converted by you sort of running back and slamming down their throats the teaching that you've had at the meeting tonight. He says, you're going to win your husband to Christ by being a good wife. So without a word, you know, not ramming the gospel down his throat. He says, let not yours be the outward adorning with braiding of hair and decoration of gold and wearing of robes, but let the hidden person of the heart, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, let's see, first of all, what he is saying. He says, let not yours be the outward adorning, braiding of hair, jewellery, blah, blah, blah. Now, I want to show you that in these things, he's not saying that you can't do your hair. He's not saying that you mustn't have nice hair. He's not saying that you mustn't ever wear jewellery. And I can prove that to you, because he also says, and the wearing of robes. He says, let not yours be, you know, the wearing of robes. Now, that Greek word is hymation, and it means outer robes and general clothing. Now, if we're going to say here that Peter is saying no special hairdos, no jewellery at all, he's also saying no clothes. And he isn't saying no clothes. We don't expect to see the women turning up here naked. He's not prohibiting them full stop in any way at all. But what he is saying is that, again, that women must realise that their true femininity, their true beauty as women, lies on the inside and not on the outside. Now, this is the fundamental thing that women must understand in the Kingdom of God. Feminine beauty. I mean, think of the number of women who, because they're not what one might call the classic model look, and let's face it, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Look at the number of women today who have hang-ups because they don't think that they're what the world says today is beautiful. Can you see? That's a terrible thing. As if you can't be a woman unless your appearance is a certain way that the world has said, this is sexy or this is beautiful or this is pretty. Can you see? Femininity is on the inside, and a woman's beauty is nothing to do with what is on the outside. And this is what the Bible is trying to say. And in fact, as soon as women think that their beauty and femininity lies in the way they appear, 
then they're going to concentrate too much on the way they appear, and that is when women start to dress in a way that the Bible would call immodest in the terms that I've defined it tonight from the Greek. So, what we've got is this. Ladies, look nice. No problem. The Bible doesn't teach that Christian women have to look like the back of a bus after the accident. That isn't what the Bible says at all. The Bible gives absolute freedom for women to wear nice clothes. Yeah, wear nice clothes. Do your hair. No problem. Can you see the Bible is trying to redress the balance? So we're not saying you can't wear nice clothes. We're not saying women can't have their hair done, etc., etc. But what Paul is doing is he's saying, remember that the femininity lies on the inside. And when you realize that, then you're not going to start appearing wrong on the outside. The same with makeup. The Bible doesn't say it's wrong to wear makeup. Wear makeup, no problem. But to the extent that it is seemly, and to the extent that it is modest in the terms of the Greek that we've seen. Now, let me just give you a rule in regards to makeup. It's really strange. I mean, the last hundred years, this has been such a controversial subject. I mean, there are Christians today that if they saw a, a so-called Christian woman wearing makeup, they practically conclude she must be a prostitute or something. I mean, this, this makeup thing is not dead yet, but let me give you a rule for makeup, and it's based on the teaching of the Bible. And it's quite simply this. There's a difference between wearing makeup and being a painted woman. Can everyone see that difference? The difference between wearing makeup and being a painted woman. Now, here's a principle. If you're unrecognizable without your makeup, you are wearing too much. Does that make sense? I think that makes a great deal of sense. Because what you're doing is you're putting a mask on. You're doing what actors do before they go on stage. You're doing what the clown does before he steps into the circus. You're putting a mask on. And you see, the tragedy of a mask, if you wear it not realising it's a mask, is that a mask denies who you are. I remember Paul saying, look, your femininity is on the inside. If you start becoming a painted woman, he says you're wearing a mask. You're denying who you actually are. So what it boils down to is this, for women. Don't dress sexually. Don't dress alluringly in a sexy sense. Or, in other words, don't dress to kill. And I've seen Christian women in churches who are dressed to kill. Do you know what I mean? They have dressed in such a way that guarantees that every unsanctified male eye in the place is going to be on them. And that is what the Bible says is sin. Be beautiful. Be feminine. But what Christian women mustn't be is loose, or I suppose a word that people would not is vampish. Can you see? There's a kind of a vampishness. When you look at someone and the very kind of aura that they're giving off with the way they're dressed, it's designer clothes to put off lust, 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 lust 
it exudes it. Now that is how Christian women must not dress. Let me say something about the blokes, because, you know, I mean, blokes can get this wrong as well. Some blokes dress looking like the dog just spat them out. <laughs> now, that is, is not what the Bible teaches. I mean, so, some blokes in the church, you take one look at them and you can't work out whether they've been brought up at Eton or whether they've been eaten and brought up. Can you see? Because they look such a terrible mess. And so the men have got to apply this dress thing to themselves as well. We've already seen the general rules for dress in an earlier study, but it boils down to this. Keep your culture. Keep your fashion. Keep your character. But we've got to make sure that it's presentable and, of course, goes without saying, it's got to be clean. And let me say as well that men can dress sexually <coughs> too. Everyone knows that. That some blokes dress in a deliberately sexually provocative way. That also is wrong. That isn't on in the church. And I think that in some ways it boils down now because when you're talking about a subject like this, you know, are people going over the edge in the way that they dress? Are they causing people to stumble? You see, the problem is that is a subjective thing. I mean, I've heard sort of some blokes talk about, oh, I think the way that so-and-so is dressed is wrong, is wrong. And I've thought, well, I honestly can't see any problem with it at all. So there's a subjective element of judgment here. Now, I think the principle that we've got to use, all right, is quite simply this. If Robert or I had, shall we say, two or three different people complaining about the same person, quite independently, I'm not meaning ganging up, but say someone came into the church, be it a bloke or a girl, if two or three people independently were saying the way they're dressing is actually making me stumble, if it were got to the point of two or three, then Robert and I would start to look into it. I won't prove anything, but that is when you start to look into it. Anyone can say that so-and-so is making me stumble by the way they dress. There's got to be more than that. But the principle is that if it got to the point where, shall we say, two or three people were independently becoming really concerned that someone was dressing in a sexually unseemly way, then once two or three people had mentioned that, then Robert and I would have to begin to at least take it on board and, and to sort of start to say, well, is there truth in this or are the people just being silly? So anyway, there you are, a bit of teaching in regards to dress that Paul deals with. So now we come to the, 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 the main verses that, that, that we're wanting in this particular passage. So let's, let, let's just read them through again. This is verse 11 through to verse 15. And he says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Now, Paul is quite clear here, and 
The context is teaching. It's learning. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. And he says quite blatantly and without any kind of apology, uh, without any kind of qualification, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Now, let's, let's think about this. We've seen that the, the very best way to define what a church is biblically is to say that it's an extended family of God. So that literally, as a church, we are an extended family. I mean, we're, we're all part of our own individual family units, husbands, wives, children, etc., etc. But as a corporate group of people, we are related because God is our father, Jesus is our big brother, we are brothers and sisters, so we are an extended family. And is it not the case that we would surely expect to see that anything that is true of individual family life is going to be carried over into church family life? And what is the thing that we see in family life when it comes to the question of leadership, when it comes to the question of authority? And what we see is that the husband is the head of the family, that the man is the head of the woman. And so therefore, when we come into the church family, we would expect to see exactly the same thing. And what we would expect to see is quite simply this, that leadership is male. The man, the husband, is the leader, spiritually, but in every way, of his family. And so in the same way, when we're talking about the church, when it comes to anything of leadership, now obviously elders have a role to play in that, and you know, and sort of this is all part of why we're saying obviously eldership is male. But but leadership isn't just for the elders, and we're seeing that, you know, the whole push is that for everyone to be taking their part and, and, you know, and to playing their role. And what we're seeing here, and this shouldn't surprise us in, in the slightest, is that when Paul talks about teaching, now he's talking here about when there is teaching, when the church is gathered for teaching. And what he's saying is, well, that this obviously constitutes, in a sense, having authority over the church. I mean, obviously, the authority is what you're proclaiming from the Word of God. But what we're seeing here is that teaching is going to be for the men folk. Teaching is going to be for the blokes. It is not going to be for the women. And so, therefore, obviously, you don't have to be an elder to teach. And uh, one of the things that we've seen is that um, in the early church, that when churches met on the Sundays on the first day of the week, that was, was for the love feast and for a gathering that was, was completely wide open for everyone to take part. But we saw as well that daily during the week, they continued in the apostles' doctrine and prayer fellowship. And that is why um, on our Sundays, we have our open, completely wide open participatory gathering together, anyone free to take part. And, um, and we have the love feast, of course. And, uh, but, but during the week, on Tuesdays, we have Bible study. On Fridays, we meet and we spend the evening in prayer together. It's, it's because church life carries on through the week. And of course, what Paul's talking about here is that time when the church gathers 
to be taught as a church when you're gathering specifically to continue in the Apostles' Doctrine. And of course, for us, to continue in the Apostles' Doctrine is to continue in growing in the New Testament. So basically, it's meeting for Bible study. Now, obviously, the more... You know, the more people, the more men folk in a church taking in turns doing that, the better. And obviously, the elders are going to play a role. They have to be apt to teach. And uh, but but the more men folk who are able to join in that, the better. But of course, what we're seeing here is that that is not for the ladies. So teaching here is something. Doing Bible teaching to the church is something again that the women can't do. And We've got to be very clear the reason for this. And Paul says that this, this goes back to what happened in Genesis. This, this, this goes back to the Garden of Eden. Let me make it clear, this is nothing to do with culture. This is, this is nothing to do with something that applied then but doesn't today. I mean, yet there are things in Scripture where culture comes into play, of course. And from the context, one can work that out. But here, Paul goes out of his way to make clear that this has got nothing to do with culture, that this actually goes back to the Garden of Eden. And remember, between Adam and Eve, Adam was created to be the head of Eve. He was created first, Eve came out of him, and he named her. And, and, and so the mere fact that Adam came first, all these things, even before sin came into the world, Adam was meant to be the head of Eve, the head of his family. And of course, what happened in the Garden of Eden, Eve ended up deceived because she moved independently from her husband. Now then, Adam is held responsible for that. Sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, not through Eve. But nevertheless, Eve was deceived because she moved out on her own in independence from her husband. If you like, she came out of the position that she should have been under his caring authority. And so for this reason, Paul says, no, the women can't teach. Now, some, some think he's actually saying that, um, you know, that this means that if the women do teach, they're going to get deceived. Well, okay, maybe, maybe not. Let's face it, an awful lot of menfolk are deceived as well. But whether he's saying that or not, it's absolutely clear that regardless of the reasons women are not to teach, and regardless of whether or not they're more prone to deception, I don't want to get into that at the moment, but we're quite simply seeing that women are not to be doing the teaching in the church. That falls to the menfolk. And it, because Paul sees here that with, with teaching, he sees that as having authority over the church. Now, it's not just whether an elder does it or someone who's not an elder. But the point is, you're in a position, you're, you're, you're as it were, before the whole church giving it direction. Now, that's a leadership thing to do. That's, that's a, a kind of authoritative thing to do. And precisely for that reason, it cannot fall to the ladies. It must be the men folk who are doing that. And so again, here we're seeing something that the women are not able to do. They shouldn't do Bible teaching. Now obviously, can you see how, of course, this just everything we're seeing 
is saying that women cannot be elders either. We've seen they cannot be deacons. But how ridiculous in the light of this to say that women can be elders. One of the specific things that elders are specifically called to is to be responsible for doing teaching. Doesn't mean they're the only ones who can do it, but they at the very least must be doing it. Well, if we're here seeing that the women are not able to teach, and specifically because they're not to have authority over the church, then what a complete nonsense to say that women can be in an eldership uh, kind of role. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. And again, it's because in the natural family, what is the pattern? What do we see? We see the man as the head, we see the man in leadership. Leadership is male. And therefore, when it comes to eldership, eldership is male. And also, when it comes to teaching the church, and you don't have to be an elder to teach the church, but when it comes to teaching the church, it's a leadership thing, and therefore that too is going to be male. And uh, just, 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 just so we've um, ended this in verse 15, but women will be saved through childbearing. I take it a difficult verse, but I take it probably that there's a promise there, literally, for safe childbirth, uh, you know, for women who are faithfully following the Lord. So, there, there we have something else. We're seeing, what are we seeing? We've seen that women can't be deacons. We're seeing that women can't dress sexually, um, but neither must men either. And, uh, and now we've seen clearly that women cannot teach, and therefore this is just becoming so obvious as well that women cannot be elders. And it all boils down quite simply to this. Leadership is male. In God's design, leadership is meant to be male. Okay, well, another passage that we've got to go through, go to here, is 1 Corinthians 14. Because again, this affects things that women can't do in the church. So let's actually turn to the verses that I want to um, actually go through. And uh, if you find 1 Corinthians 14, and um, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, and we want uh, the verses towards the end of the chapter. Yes, it's... um, the second half of verse 33, I've suddenly found it. It went walkies, but it's just come back. Um, let's, let's just actually read this. Paul says, As in all the congregations of the saints, and now I'm moving into verse 34, this is 1 Corinthians 14, As in all the congregations of the saints, and notice that this is, this is worldwide, this is for every church. This isn't make up your own mind, go as you're led. These are set things, you know. Um, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about anything, sorry, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is a disgraceful, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Well, my goodness, we've got, to, we've got to deal with this. Is Paul here saying that the women cannot speak when the church comes together? Now, let's, let's get the context here. Let's, let's, let's un- understand what Paul is talking about. In these chapters, Paul is dealing with problems that have arisen from when the Corinthians come together as a church. So what we're dealing with here, basically, is what churches get up to on a Sunday. We're, we're dealing here with the very format of when churches gather. And in the chapters 
preceding this, what we're seeing is that Paul is dealing with various uh, problems that are arising in the Corinthian church. Now then, remember that when the church, when churches in the New Testament came together, they, were, they would meet in a house. Remember, they were small, so they would meet in someone's house. And there were two, two aspects to their gathering. When they came together on the first day of the week on Sundays, two aspects. And they would have uh, a time of sharing that was completely wide open, spontaneous, free for all to take part in. Um, no one was leading it. They didn't have services. And obviously, there, there was sung worship, there was prayer, there was sharing from the Word of God, there was testimony, there were the gifts of the Spirit. It was wide open for people to participate as the Lord led them. And the idea of that was for everyone to be building each other up so that the Lord could be ministering to everyone gathered through everyone gathered as well. So that was the first thing they did. And then, of course, the other thing that they did is that they had the Lord's Supper. They had a meal together, a full meal together. And it was in the sharing of that meal that, you know, they saw that as the covenant meal and, uh, you know, sort of like the the one loaf and, and, and the cup as part of the wider meal. And, and together they called it the Lord's Supper. And this was their special church fellowship meal, celebrating that Jesus was with them as the guest of honour. And this, this is the context of these chapters. And in chapter 14, what Paul has been dealing with is the ground rules for the open participatory part of their gathering. And remember, one of the problems that had come up in Corinthians was that they were abusing the gifts of the Spirit, all speaking in tongues at the same time. And so what Paul is doing, he's laying the ground rules for this gathering. And he's saying, look, the fact that there's so much freedom that you're all free to partake as the Lord leads doesn't mean that you're all free to do exactly what you like. Here are the ground rules. So you've got to stick with them. You know, like only one person speaking at a time. Um, if you're going to speak in tongues, make sure there's an interpretation. And there's the rules for testing prophecy and stuff like that. Now, this is the context of what Paul is talking about here. So when he says, as in the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches, he is talking in regards to this participatory time when the church kind of all sitting round, waiting on the Lord, sharing together in the way that the Lord leads. All right. In earlier chapters, he's been dealing with problems that surrounded the love feast. But the context here is that open sharing time. And so what we've got to ask is this. Is Paul saying that whereas, uh, if you go back into verse 26, what should we say then, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word or instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Is, is Paul saying there that the women are not to take verbal part in that? Now, there, there are some who would say yes to that. Their, their understanding would be that the women are not to take verbal part. They're okay, for instance, if they're singing, because that's corporate and it's not, they're not individually addressing um, the, you know, everyone um, who is gathered on that particular occasion. And let me say that although that isn't my understanding, and I'll, I'll, I'll certainly uh, make that a bit clearer, nevertheless, let me say that at least uh, when, when churches have that understanding, at least that is coming out of the Word of God. At least they're doing that because they're seriously trying to get to grips with what Scripture teaches. So at least that can be very much respected. Even though I don't agree with it, I respect that. 
What I don't respect, however, is whether it's the verses we've just seen about I do not permit a woman to teach, or whether it's this the women remaining silent. What I personally cannot respect are people who either just totally ignore these verses, they just totally ignore them, they are never ever referred to, or any time they are referred to, it is purely to dismiss them as something to do with the culture of the day, with no more explanation whatsoever. Now, that I cannot respect. That is not an honourable position to take. One has got to come to grips with these things that Scripture says. It's as simple as that. Okay, so if, I, if I'm saying that my understanding isn't that this means that the women can't take part verbally, then what on earth is it? Okay, and the key to understanding this more fully lies in a passage earlier on in Corinthians, back in chapter 11. Now, this is um, a passage that needs attention in its own right, but for the time being, if you just go back to chapter 11, and um, let's just read from uh, verse 2. And Paul says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings or the traditions that should be, just as I pass them on to you. So he's talking here about practice um, when the church comes together. Now, what I just want you to get is in verse 5, and it says, And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. Now, I don't want to, at this juncture, go into what that means. I just want you to notice one thing. In this passage, Paul is assuming that women are, at the very least, praying and prophesying. Now, what he's saying is, to do so properly, they need a covering on their heads. That's what I'm not going into at this juncture. But can you see that Paul is assuming that given that they have this proper covering, whatever it is, it is absolutely fine. He is expecting women to, at the very least, to be praying and prophesying. So the question that arises is this. Is this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, is this relating to Paul's treatment of when the Corinthians come together on the Lord's Day? Because if it is, then Paul is assuming that the women are taking verbal part in that participatory gathering. So when, at the end of 1 Corinthians 14, he says that women are be silent in churches, then, then it's, that's not quite as straightforward as it seems. It could be a qualified silence rather than a total silence. And so that's, that's what we've got to actually look at. Now, I want to demonstrate to you that this passage in 1 Corinthians 11 is indeed Paul dealing with the Lord's Day gathering of a church. And I think I can do this very, very simply. And it's, it's simply by answering the question, at what point in his letter does Paul start dealing with the Lord's Day gathering? Now, remember, we've, we've said that there are two, two aspects, two parts, if you like, to when a church comes together. There's this, the open participatory gathering to build each other up for worship and sharing together and, 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 and testimony and the gifts of the Spirit, whatever. That's, that's the first part, if you like. Well, I mean, I'm not talking about chronological order here. And then the other aspect is the Lord's Supper, the meal 
gathering. Now, so when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, when, when he's dealing with the problems surrounding the Lord's Day gathering, then he's dealing with problems that relate to both aspects, the open gathering and the actual love feast itself. And because we know that, we can actually look in Scripture and we can see when exactly Paul is starting to deal with their Lord's Day gathering, the first day of the week, the Sunday gathering of the church. Now, in regards to the Lord's Supper, already, you know, in regards to the, the, you know, the open sharing time, there were problems with misuse of the gifts of the Spirit, there was pandemonium and chaos, and, and, and all that related to that aspect. But there were problems surrounding the Lord's Supper itself. There were problems surrounding the love feast. And these problems were twofold. One of the problems surrounded what was happening at the love feast itself. And another problem was, some, was surrounded what people coming to the love feast were doing outside of the church. All right. Now, in regards to what was happening at the love feast itself, um, you know, like the richer people were getting there a bit early because remember it wasn't a day off and they, they, they probably had leisure to get off work early or not even go to work. And the poorer people probably came a bit late because, you know, they couldn't get off work early. And what was happening, the rich, who were probably bringing most of the food anyway because the poor didn't have much, were tucking in and eating the food and uh, they weren't even waiting for the poorer people to get there and they were getting drunk as well. And that, that was one aspect of, you know, of, of Paul saying, look, this is, this is very, very wrong what you're doing. That isn't the way it should be. It should be to do with sharing. So that was the first problem. And of course, uh, later on, Paul says that they were actually coming under judgment. He said, this is why some of you are weak and ill and some have died, that God's judgment was actually coming on them because of this abuse for the love feast. But the other aspect of the abuse of the love feast uh, came very specifically from the fact that he was writing to the Corinthian church. Now, in, in the ancient world, and of course Corinth was in Greece. I mean, the Greeks tended to be pretty immoral anyway, but uh, in the Greek culture, um, I mean, the, the verb to Corinthianize in, in, in common language came to mean to be especially immoral. And Corinth as a city was notorious for its immorality. And one of the reasons for this is it had a temple in Corinth, and uh, the temple of Aphrodite. And, uh, and the, the, the worship there, the, the temple activities there, was basically a pagan love feast. I, I mean, the early church was not alone in having love feasts. It was common in the ancient world. But they had a pagan love feast. But this involved, you know, sort of sex with the, the priestesses who were virtually prostitutes. So really they were, you know, they were, you know, sort of prostitute priestesses. And, and, and the whole thing was, was, was just an absolute orgy and it, it was absolutely dreadful. Now in the Corinthian church obviously the converts were from two layers, two different aspects of Corinthian society. There were converted Jews because there were a lot of, all over the the empire the the Jews were there, there were converted Jews but this specifically pro this specific problem surrounded those who had been converted who were the Greeks out of the Corinthian society and remember, <coughs> excuse me, that their background was partly this immoral love feast down at this temple. And what we're going to see is happening, that some of the contingent in the Corinthian church, the believers, they're coming to the church love feast, but 
during the week they're going down to these pagan love feasts as well. And if you go back into, uh, sorry, again into 1 Corinthians 11, um, sorry, no, go back into 1 Corinthians 10, and if we just read um, verse 14, I want you to see how Paul is dealing here with those people who are coming to the church love feast, but they're going to these pagan immoral love feasts as well. Now then, let's, let's, let's look in verse 14. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry, because they were idolatrous love feasts. I speak to sensible people, judge yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ, or fellowship in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation or fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. So what he's saying, look, when you come to the church love feast, this, this is our oneness with Jesus. This is our oneness with each other. This is the Lord working in us. He's actually there. He's present with us. This is what he's saying. And then he goes on, he says, Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the, no, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons not to God. And I do not want you to be participants or have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. What's this cup of demons? It's the love feast down in the temple of Aphrodite. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table, obviously, the Lord's supper, the Lord's meal, the Lord's table. You eat at a table. Okay, that's what he's saying. You cannot have part in the Lord's table, the church love feast, the Lord's supper, and the table of demons. So what's he saying? He says, you can't keep going down. That's your former life. That's when you were pagans. You can't keep going down to that love feast and then come to the love feast in the church. And he says, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Because obviously... God hates idolatry. It's direct competition, as, as it were, with him. So it's absolutely clear that here in 1 Corinthians 10 that Paul there is referring to the Lord's Supper. And these, these people who were still going down to the pagan temple to have love feasts there. Now, so notice that here the problem is idolatrous love feasts from people who should be having proper love feasts. You see what I mean? It's the abuse of love feasts and turning up to the Lord's table when you've been going round and, you know, sort of doing stuff that's of the devil. All right. Now, from this point, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 10 and the beginning of the chapter, I think this will actually, make, you know, become a lot clearer. Because remember that one of the things that's happening at the love feast, and if you just go into 1 Corinthians 11, and this is Paul uh, dealing with the problems that surrounded the love feast in the actual easing of it. People coming early and, uh, you know, sort of like the latecomers, there's no food left for them and getting drunk and stuff like that. And, um, and in regards to that, um, he says in verse 30, oh, no, no, he said, verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord, the church, the body of the Lord, we are the body of Christ. 
So, so you know, kind of just going ahead doing your own individualistic, sinful, greedy thing, rather than deferring to your brothers and sisters. All right. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep or died. So here we're seeing judgment. People are actually dying in the Corinthian church because of God's judgment on them, because of all this varying abuses of the Lord's Supper. Now, in that context, let's read now 1 Corinthians 10 from verse 1. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. So here, Paul takes them back in their thinking to the story of Israel coming out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. And of course in scripture, this is a, a, a type of becoming a Christian and living the Christian life. It's kind of symbolism. It's actual history, but it's symbolic. It's, it's a picture of New Testament truth. And look, he says in verse 6, directly, he says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So what Paul is saying, that when we look back at the Old Testament, we're seeing things that are there as a warning to us. Things that happen to Israel are a warning to us as the church. Israel is a picture of the church. Now Israel is more than that. Israel is Israel. But it is a picture of the church. And um, I've said this again and again, but the way that I think of it is this. Is that, 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 that say... Um, the, the, the Old Testament illustrates New Testament truth. So, so think of it like this. If the New Testament doctrine, truth, if you like, if the New Testament doctrine or teachings, if that is the script, then the Old Testament is the movie. And that what we're seeing is New Testament truth, the truth of the New Covenant, being acted out in history in the Old Testament. It is actual history, but it is illustrating for us essential truths of the New Covenant. So anytime someone is using a picture in the Old Testament and saying this picture's that, well, if the that is, is, is sound New Testament doctrine, then, then that's okay. Obviously, people can take it too far and find pictures in things that were never meant to be there. But fundamentally, what Paul is saying is, look, you know, what happened to Israel in this regard is there is a picture for us. It tells us something who are in the New Covenant. And look what he goes on to say it tells us. Because he now takes them to that time when Moses was on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. And Israel was um, down at the bottom of the mountain. And remember, they did the golden calf and they, they started to get drunk and being immoral. They did a kind of idolatrous love feast as God's people. Wow, listen. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, and now he's quoting from the Old Testament, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, 
and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Now these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come, i.e. the new covenant, Jesus himself. So can you see what Paul is saying here? He's referring the Corinthian church back to a time in Israel's history when they had a pagan idolatrous love feast and were immoral and stuff like that. And as a result of that, God actually judged them and some of them died. And when Paul deals in 1 Corinthians 11 with the love feast and their abuses of the love feast, he says, some of you are weak and ill and died. And he's saying, this is that. In the same way that God judged them, the sin unto death, now it's happening to you. So therefore, what this tells me is quite simply this. If we ask the question, when in 1 Corinthians, and remember Paul is answering questions that relate to different things that have been sent in a letter to him, dealing with marriage and celibacy and being, you know, I mean, tons of stuff. And, and eventually he comes to a whole clump of things surrounding when the church gets together, all right, when it meets on Sundays. And so therefore, okay, what, what we're asking is, at what point in the letter does Paul turn his attention to the actual Lord's Day gathering? as you might want to call it, of the church. Now, it's quite obvious that it ends at the end of 1 Corinthians 14. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, he moves on to deal with things about the resurrection body and being glorified. So it's, it's obvious when it ends, but when does it start? Well, I put it to you that it starts here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And that it obviously starts here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because he begins the whole proceedings, their biggest problem. I mean, you know, if some of us were actually dying through God's judgment, I would consider that our biggest problem as a church, all right, in regards to the Lord's Day meeting. And so therefore, he opens up with the Old Testament that that happened to them, and he says, and it's happening to you, and this is why. So therefore, straighten yourselves out in regards to the love feast, and of course, in regards to your open, you know, sort of like, you know, spontaneous, you know, kind of sharing time when everyone's free to take part. So therefore, if we are to conclude, as I am forced to, that Paul begins his treatment of the Lord's Day gathering in chapter 10, then, when he addresses this head covering thing in 1 Corinthians 11, he is referring to women during that open participatory time. Can you see that? So, therefore, what we have is that although Paul does say, ladies, you must have this covering, now I take it to be long hair, you must have this covering in order to pray and prophesy, at the very least. Nevertheless, Paul is assuming they are doing that when the church comes together. Therefore, when we come to these verses at the end of 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul says, 
as in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. Well, we've got to conclude, I mean, Paul isn't a twit. I mean, he's not, he's not intellectually challenged or something. I mean, he's not going to virtually on one page of his letter say, oh, by the way, you know, ladies, you know, when you pray and prophesy, do it like this. And then uh, two or three pages on saying, oh, by the way, ladies, I don't want you speaking at all. Of course not. Paul, Paul isn't silly. OK, so therefore, by definition, what we've got here is what you might call a limited silence in limited circumstances. Now, what do I what do I mean by that? Well, interesting, um, interestingly enough, I mean, let's let's just go back into verse 29, because prior to this, Paul Paul has been, you know, sort of dealing with 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 all the aspects of, of, of the open, you know, sort of sharing together the rules and regulations for tongues and prophecy and, you know, and all this kind of thing. And so therefore he's he's been laying down um, a few um, a few ground rules, and um, let's see. So where's the? Well, let's 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 just look initially at in verse twenty nine. So he says two or three prophets should speak. Now we'll be back to this shortly. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. Now, notice that. He's saying, here's a time where someone is to stop speaking. But is he saying to that person, I don't want, ever want you to start speaking again in the gathering? No, he's talking about a limited silence at a particular point in the proceedings, if you will. And, and then back in, um, in, in verse 27, um, when he's, you know, sort of, doing the thing about tongues, he says, look, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. So here he's saying, basically, look, you know, sort of tongues must be interpreted. And if it's obvious that a tongue isn't going to be interpreted, he said, then don't speak in tongues. So if you have spoken in tongues and no one has interpreted, don't then go on and speak in tongues again. If interpretation isn't flowing, tongues uninterpreted publicly is just an absolute waste of time. It's complete zippo. You know, don't do it, Paul says. Okay. Obviously, only one person must speak at the time in a meeting, so you can't all speak in tongues together. All right, but if you speak in tongues, it must be interpreted. So he says, if you've spoken in tongues, if no one's interpreting, he says, then um, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church. Now then, is he saying, and I don't ever want you to speak again when the church comes together for its 1 Corinthians 14 type gathering? No, of course not. He's saying they are to be silent in that circumstance at the appropriate time. So what we've got here is what you might call appropriate silences, temporary silences at appropriate times. So therefore, when he says that the women should remain silent in the churches, remember, he's just told the tongue speaker a time when he must be quiet in the church. <coughs> now he's telling the women a time when they should be quiet in the church. And this phrase in the church referring to this, this open 
gathering, all right, where everyone's free to take part, down in 26. What should we say then, brothers, <clears throat> when you come together, everyone has. See, that's the push behind it. Everyone has all free to take part as the Spirit leads. So now he's saying, and ladies, here's something where you are to keep silent, merely because you're ladies. So what is it? What is it? Well, I think that significantly, these words precisely follow the verses where Paul's given the ground rules for testing prophecy. But it's more than that. He's not just talking about people who prophesy, because he says you may all prophesy one by one. But he's specifically talking about prophets. Now, and elsewhere he says, are all prophets? No. So he's talking about a very specific situation, and it's testing prophets. Let's just read this. And remember, these are the immediate verses before these verses about the women being silent. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. So he says, if there are prophets there, they're bringing something to you from the Lord. Okay, this would apply to prophecy, you know, sort of in general. But two or three, and then stop. You've got to take it in. You've got to test it. Yeah, you can all prophesy one by one, but you don't want to get ten, you know, sort of seven, eight, nine, ten prophecies. In a, you've got to stop and take it in and test it before you move on, all right? So the context here is testing of prophecy, weighing what it was said. And, and he says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. So obviously there's, no, there's, there's, there's nothing out of control. Um, the ancient world, uh, probably the Oracle of Delphi means something to you. And uh, you know, in, in the ancient world, there were religions, places you could go to, and there were, strange enough, they were often prophetesses, although not always. But the ca what characterised prophecy in that sense is that people were out of control. They were taken over by the spirit that came into them and spoke the prophecy. Well, that's always a sign of occultism or of someone being silly, <laughs> all right, and getting carried away. But that's very, very different. I mean, the key, for God is not um, a God of disorder, but of peace. And of course, elsewhere, Paul says, everything should be done decently and in order, down in verse 40. Everything should be done decently and in order. So that's why you get all this oh dear, all this charismatic nonsense, you know, people falling around and all this slain in the spirit stuff. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's out of court. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but, but this, this here is the context. Testing messages through prophets. Now, let me just, just kind of, and we'll be back to this in a later talk, but prophecy functioned in a way in the early church that it doesn't function anymore today. We have the scripture. When Jesus gave the apostles the promise that I will lead you into all the truth, that all the truth that the Holy Spirit led them into is the scripture, is the New Testament. So therefore, for us to test prophecy, it's always by scripture. And if you like, relatively straightforward. Okay, you might get prophecy that's predictive. Well, you test that by if it happens, and if it doesn't, it's a false prophecy. But by and large, when prophecy comes, it's tested by the Word of God. The Corinthian church, the early church, didn't have the Word of God. They had bits and pieces, the odd letter from Paul and Peter and stuff like that. But they, unlike us, they couldn't sit down and look through their New Testaments and think, oh, is that a biblical thing that he just said in that prophecy? 
because they didn't have the whole completed New Testament to look through. So, firstly, testing of prophecy in the early church was very different to how it is for us because they didn't have the fully completed New Testament at their disposal. That's the first thing. But secondly, and this is, this is just, I just theorise with you on this, all right. In the Old Testament, prophecy equated to the Word of God. Prophets actually spoke the Word of God. It became scripture, virtually. Now, in the same way, there was a, a, a type of prophecy. In the, in the early church, there was a type of apostle that isn't around today. Apostles were around today, but Paul and the eleven were a type of apostle who were unique because their teaching was infallible. We don't need that type of prophet anymore because we've got their teaching in the New Testament. Now, in the same way, there was a type of prophet then that there isn't now. There are prophets around today, but there was a type then that there isn't now. And it was someone who was prophesying scripture. So what I want to put to you is this. It is very possible that prophets recognize prophets or or one aspect of prophecy is that it was recognized that some prophecy was actually the very truth of scripture and it was a means of the early church um and receiving more and more of the truth that eventually was fully written down in the new testament now if that was the case but even in regards to what I said earlier about they didn't have the New Testament to test anything by, one way or the other, because testing of prophecy was so different to how it is today, it was by definition for the older brothers, for the elders, to be doing. Now also, if it was true that prophecy was playing a part in actually bringing the truth of scripture before it was written down, then in that sense, testing it was exactly the same in that sense as wrestling with scripture in Bible teaching. And we've already seen that teaching is not for the women to do. Therefore, what I'm saying is that this testing of prophecy, as talked about here, was something for the menfolk to be doing by definition, because it was a teaching affair, it was a leadership affair. And so for that reason, it would have had to have been the menfolk. And therefore, and it would have had to have been done when the prophecies came. Because for those of you who have heard prophecies, it's very, you, you, you can go home and the next morning you can't remember them. <laughs> so you've got to do it there and then, and Paul says that, look, two or three prophecies and then, then, you sort them out, then you take them on board, then you have to test them to see if this truly is the word of the Lord. So it had to be done there and then in the gathering. So what Paul is saying, that is for the menfolk. Obviously any elders such as there were would have played a big part in that, but it was for the menfolk and not the women. And obviously Paul is addressing a situation where clearly when this was happening, the women folk were diving in as well, and this was causing problems. And Paul is saying, uh-uh, no, don't, don't do that. And when he says, look, if they've got any inquiries, and it's about this testing of whatever has just been said, ask, you know, ask their husbands at home, not there and then. Because the point is, questions can be leading. 
I mean, there are honest questions, but there are questions that can be leading. I could question something that you're saying, but I'm asking a question, not because I'm looking for an answer, but because I'm trying to say, no, I think that what you're saying is wrong or you ought to be saying this. And, and so the point is that, that, that here, when prophecy was being tested, Paul just says, no, look, I'm just closing this down for the ladies. Obviously, they're listening, but if there's anything that they want to bring up in regards to it, or anything they think, oh, goodness, no, I think that's wrong. Then what Paul is saying, no, don't do it there and then, all right? Because if you do that, you are usurping the role of the men. The men folk would be doing that. Now then, nothing is, 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 is so quick that it can't be corrected, you know, in the morning. So he says, look, if there's something that's really burdening you, then when you get home, when you've got your husband on your own, you explain it to him. And then, obviously, if it is important, then he can bring it back to the church in that regard. So that's, that's basically uh, my understanding of what Paul is saying here. So in regards to our gathering, when we come together, when, when you come together, each one has, then our understanding is that um, that, that is okay. That is okay for the ladies to be taking part in and uh, to be sharing in as the Spirit leads. And, uh, you know, but obviously anything, anything that is of, of doctrine or anything like that, obviously we've seen that that is for the men folk. Right, so, so basically we've seen, as it were, what is closed to the ladies, all right, what, what, what the women can't do. We've seen that women, um, they can't be deacons, we've seen obviously they can't be elders, they can't do teaching. And what, what this boils down to is quite simply that these things are leadership things. And of course, the principle that we're seeing is that leadership is male. It, it is or should be in uh, individual families, and therefore it sh that should be reflected very, very clearly in the extended um, family of the church. Now, let me, let me just raise a couple of questions. Is this all too just male-oriented? I mean, doesn't leadership need female perspective and input? Well, the answer is, yeah, of course it does. I mean, for instance, the Bible assumes most elders are married. Now then, what, what, what man worth his salt is not drawing all the time on his wife's wisdom and input and spiritual understanding? So, I mean, you know, it's not as if, you know, sort of like there, there, there is no input into the church at all. And, you know, and, and we're seeing that, you know, that, there are these things that the women can't do. It doesn't mean that their input, it doesn't mean that their wisdom isn't, isn't being sifted into the church. For heaven's sake, we're seeing that, that so much is participatory where precisely you're looking for everybody to, um, you know, to be involved. So, so no, this isn't too male-oriented at all. I mean, I agree. I mean, a church with only male emphasis a church where wisdom only comes from the men is not a church I'd want to be part of. But in a biblical church, though there are things that the women can't do, uh, we're not talking about it being completely male-oriented at all. That, 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 that just isn't, isn't the case. And, um, and, and, and obviously we're, we're pretty alone in this as a church. This isn't popular today. 
by any means. And, uh, you know, I think we're, we're seen as cultural dinosaurs or something. But let's go back. This is nothing to do with culture anyway. This, this is to do with the Word of God. And even Paul's teaching in Scripture is not culturally conditioned. It's nothing. In fact, Paul, Paul places it all back because of what happened in, in, in the Garden of Eden. So, my goodness, this is certainly not, you know, purely a cultural thing. And let me say as well, when people say, well, look, you know, sort of like you say that women shouldn't be leaders in the church, all right, you know, shouldn't take leadership in the church, that's just cultural. Well, let me say to you, you're saying that women should be in leadership in the church. Um, that's just cultural, isn't it? <laughs> that's just the culture of your day. So, therefore, to settle the cultural argument, it's no use arguing from culture. We've got to go back to Scripture. And I have quite simply shared with you what Scripture says. So, we're on our own here, but, you know, very much. But, okay, fair enough. Uh, we're happy to pioneer things as long as, um, as long as the things are pretty, you know, sort of clearly what, what the Bible says. And let me just, just cl close down here by, by just saying... What about, you know, when women folks saying, oh, well, if we can't be elders, if we can't be in leadership, uh, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of not truly fulfilled in the Lord. Well, let me say that in, in regards to being elders, say, for instance, most men aren't going to be elders. Can they not be spiritually fulfilled? I mean, this, this, this would make spiritual fulfillment the preserve of a tiny minority, recognised elders. Well, that, that would be a complete... You know, sort of nonsense. And also, when you get this thing, oh, I can't be spiritually fulfilled unless I'm in leadership, the problem is that, uh, that behind that thinking is the very clergy-laity divide that we reject totally. It's an elitist idea of leadership. I mean, we found in this church in the past, we've had people come in who want to be leaders. You know, they want to come in and impress us and, you know, give them a few weeks, you know, maybe three, three months down the line and they're, they're going to be an elder or something. And uh, none of them have survived. And the reason is it's because they've eventually realised that we don't believe in the kind of leadership they're wanting to exert anyway. Because we don't, we don't see leadership as being hierarchical. Elders aren't hierarchical. We see the church as being self-governing. So the problem is with this about, you know, sort of the thing about women feeling disenfranchised in, in that sense, it, it just makes too much of eldership. <laughs> and it doesn't make anything like enough of non-eldership. And in actual fact, uh, you know, this thing about, you know, sort of like you're not fulfilled unless you can take leadership is, is actually, it's, it's silly. It's, you know, it's a kind of a folly thing. It's to misunderstand leadership. Leadership, as we've seen again and again and again in this series, is functional. It is not uh, positional in, in any way at all. Okay, right. Well, we've, uh, we've seen basically what, what the ladies can't do and uh, we, will, um, we will carry on with this next time.